I've been thinking a lot about death lately because I've had to. We've had to. Um, I've been to four funerals in six weeks. Um, did one yes Friday. Friday's not yesterday. And for our friend Van, 58 years old, very healthy individual, and he died. And it still messes with me. Four weeks ago today, I was in a trauma, trauma one unit at Lutheran Hospital with a dead police officer. You could smell blood. This last week, I was with a friend of mine uh, that his body is breaking down on him. He is debilitated. And I had to help him from his wheelchair to the toilet. Here we go again. I'm just going <laughs> to cry every Sunday, I guess. Um, it's the new me. Um, <laughs> uh, our bodies are a lot of work. Even if they're working right, they're a lot of work. I mean, think about it. We have to clean them, unless you're like 12. Um, you, just, you don't have to do that. Um, we have to clean them. We have to feed them. We have to relieve them. We have to rest them. And that's if they're functioning pretty good. Um, they're, our bodies are a pain in the rear, right? They just... And then we have to deal with other people's bodies, if you're a parent and you have non-potty trained children, you have to help them dress and all the things, feed them. Some of you know what it's like to go full day, full speed, and you forget to eat. Anybody in the room? Yeah. I don't have that problem. <laughs> I will never forget to eat. Um, some of you don't know how to slow down. Some of you don't know... You're, you're not sleeping well. There's chronic pain. The needs in our bodies are relentless. Especially the older we get. There are some in our culture that say the body is obsolete. Meaning that AI and tech are getting us to a place where uh, we just really don't use our bodies as much or we don't need our bodies as much. And most of us live out of our minds and our consciousness anyway, so the body is not that important. When it becomes too much pain or work or it is breaking down, the question becomes, can we just get rid of or escape our bodies? Sounds kind of sci-fi-ish. But then there's the ways that we talk about our bodies. I saw a commercial for a face cream the other day. Don't ask. Um, but it said, use it and your body will thank you. I thought that was a like, really interesting phrase. Use it and your body will thank you. So what is the you that your body is not that will thank you? And I just started thinking about how like separated we are. Will your soul thank your body? Will your psyche? Will your mind? 
that you that is not your body will thank your body, I guess. I don't, I don't understand. Um, but here's the, here's the big question this morning. And it's going to sound like a stupid question. But the question is for us is, are you your body? Are you your body? I imagine some of you might not like this question. Please don't tell me that I'm my body. Please do not tell me that I am my body. Good things that we experience in the body. Um, let's just, the smell of garlic and olive oil, right? That's a good thing we experience, right, in our bodies. That's, oh yeah. Some of you are like, why do you do this to me? Why do you make me hungry when you start talking? Uh, warm sun on our face. Uh, I was thinking back to this last summer uh, behind a, a, a boat, doing, uh, doing the surfboard behind the boat, and just feeling the wave under my feet. This morning, just kind of going over my teaching, um, our young kitten, who's insane, crawled up on my chest and, and laid down and started purring. And just like, wow, that's just like a... A lot of preachers and teachers, they're, they're down on cats. I'm not. I like cats. And, uh, but then there's bad things that we experience in our bodies. Hurt and abandonment. Bullying. Made fun of. Abuse. And there's literally trauma that we experience in our body, in our physicality. There's a great book out there called The Body Keeps the Score. And I, 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 you know, some of you, I don't always reference Christian books. Um, there's great truth out there that's not necessarily slapped with a Christian label. This is a phenomenal book. This is what the author says. We have learned that trauma is not just an event that took place sometime in the past. It is also the imprint left by that experience on the mind, brain, and body. This imprint has ongoing consequences for how the human organism manages to survive in the present. Trauma results in a fundamental reorganization of the way the mind and brain manage perceptions. It changes not only how we think and what we think about, but also our very capacity to think. So the things that happen to us happen in a way that actually functionally change how we go about our life. When you think about all the isms in our world, racism, sexism, ageism, ableism, it all is body-focused. And it's easy to see why so many would like to separate their, themselves from their bodies. It's easy to want to do that. Our language about our bodies actually betray us too. We things, say things and we hear things like, I hate my body. I hate my body. No one ever says, I really hate my soul. And we think we possess our bodies like a car. So that we can do whatever we want with our bodies as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. A former atheist, now Catholic writer, her name is Melinda, 
Selmi, she says this, beneath all the pageantry of free sex and self-love, there is a fundamental belief that the body doesn't mean anything, that it is insignificant in a literal sense, signifying nothing. It's just sort of a wet machine, a tool that you can use in exchange for whatever purpose suits your fancy. In order to believe this, you must either accept, A, that your body is not you, it is just a shell or a juicy robot, I love that line, (laughs) that the real you, the disembodied ghost, controls, or B, that there is no such thing as human value or dignity. It is just a nice pretense that we make up because we are terrified of this senseless, senseless and nihilistic universe. That's a little heavy. A wet machine or a juicy robot. How do we get here? Really, this is a, a huge part of our culture. And it's not just out there, it's in here. How did we get here? Because this is not God's intent. This was not how God created us to think about ourselves. How do we get here? Well, two things, philosophy and religion got us here. Um, There's a Christian heresy and a secular fallacy that got us to this point. First, let's start with the Christian heresy. So in the last few teachings, what I've been doing is doing a little bit of early church stuff, a little bit of sociology, a little bit of things, and then scripture. So trust me, I am still a Christian pastor. Uh, Some of you in the room are nervous about all this stuff. I I really do care about what scripture says, and I think there's so much that we're going to get to here in a second. But I want to talk about this Christian heresy called Gnosticism. Gnosticism. And one of the main proponents of Gnosticism was a guy named Valentus, and his dad was a preacher in the early church. Uh, But Valentus taught and Gnosticism taught that matter, that physicality was evil. That death and decay and disease and dysfunction basically proves that physicality is evil and, and the spirit inside is good. And the soul and the body were two completely separate things. Now, if you read the book of Colossians, the letter from Paul to the church in Colossae, he, and then then 1 John is also a bunch of this too, there's a huge emphasis on pushing against this teaching. So I'd encourage you to go and read Colossians and 1 John, and you'll see some major themes against this. But They taught, meaning the Gnostics, they taught that the body and the spirit are distinct. And this is very tempting to believe, right? Because we see so much physical brokenness. That God is spirit and God is holy and perfect. And there's a priority, kind of a hierarchy over matter, meaning spirit is more important than matter. That God dwells in unapproachable light. And then we should be in the spirit and not in the body. And this heresy is condemned in the early church because that had a whole lot of implications for how people saw Jesus and the, the, the significance of Jesus being fully human and 
fully God. And we are not going to get into all that today. But many modern Christians still have some Gnostic thinking in their minds. That we need to, for instance, escape the world and find salvation in heaven where our true hope is. We talked about this last spring when we talked about what salvation is. Um, and, and this teaching is not in line with God's intended functioning for human beings. This isn't his vision of Tov. That this teaching also has this idea that the goal is to leave the body and to be with God forever in heaven, um, kind of this floating disembodied spirit where we're going to sing Christian songs all the time. You know, I'm always joking around with it, but it's true. It's in our heads. That this world and our bodies are passing away and it's only our spirit that will live on. And some form of that teaching is kind of made its way into us. And it's Gnostic. It's a heresy. In heaven, you will have a body, and it will be your body. How do we know this? Jesus' resurrection. Jesus was recognizable by the disciples. He ascended into heaven physically. And so they recognize it, and this, all this first fruits language we'll get into here um, and the idea behind um, what Scripture teaches is about a new heaven, a renewed heaven, and a renewed earth, and resurrected physical bodies that you and I will have. And this is hard for us to wrap our heads around. But this Gnostic teaching is kind of a theology of escape. And it actually plays itself out on how we treat the environment, how do we treat other people. It has a lot of that. So the false views inside the church of ignoring the body in favor of this disembodied spirit floating in the sky spirituality, it also helps to kind of incubate all the isms that our culture struggles with. It kind of incubates this idea of racism and sexism and you know, it, it just kind of still holds on to some of that in the church. There's this great book by Tish Harrison Warren, and um, I haven't read all of it, but she writes this, a little longer quote, but I think it's really important. If the church does not teach us what our bodies are for, our culture certainly will. If we don't learn to live the Christian life as embodied beings, worshiping God and stewarding the good gift of our bodies, we will learn a false gospel, an alternative liturgy of the body. Instead of temples of the Holy Spirit, we will come to see our bodies primarily as a tool for meeting our needs and desires. Or we might believe that our bodies should be flawless and spend endless amounts of time and money and on creams or Botox or surgery to stave off the reality of our frail and aging bodies. Or we may attempt to ignore embodiment altogether, eating and drinking what we will with no regard for the way our choices violate a call to steward our bodies as gifts. I mean, this, is, this is kind of the world we live in. 
the message has been the church's job. This is kind of the message that's happened over, especially the last number of decades. The church's job is the spiritual stuff, not the physical body stuff. Maybe you've heard this before. Like, we're concerned with the soul. (laughs) And um, that's heresy. That's period, end of story, not the full picture. It also keeps us from doing the work of making things right in our world and participating in helping people in their physicality. My friend Tim, who needed help to the toilet the other day, I could have told him, Tim, I know you need help to the toilet, but what I'm really here for is your soul. That's what I'm really here for. Can you imagine? I know some of you are wincing. Some of you are wincing at the toilet part, and then some of you are wincing at that kind of idea. Another way this plays out is this, Um, and we're still on the kind of Christian side of things. Now that I follow Jesus, the stuff I did to others in their bodies before I followed Jesus is forgiven, and so they should forgive me because I'm a new creation. No, Nope. You still have a mess to clean up. And I think that that's um, one of the things that we need to understand when it comes to living physically with other people in relationship. And there's so much to talk about here, and I have to stay on track. So we just dealt with the Christian heresy. Let's do the secular fallacy and then kind of land the plane after some scripture. The secular fallacy, how, do we, how does this kind of get rooted in our culture? Like, it didn't just pop up overnight. Uh, well, we've got Plato to thank, um, Descartes and Darwin, and a number of other people. Um, Plato kind of, this is pre-the um, Gnostic teaching, this kind of influenced Gnostic teaching, was, is this idea that the soul and the mind are distinct from the body. The body is evil. It's a prison for the soul. Uh, The soul needs to escape the body. And um, this got into the church. Obviously, we just talked about that. Then you fast forward through history, and we've got Descartes. And Descartes has that famous line, I think, therefore, I am. Right? This idea that to be human is a thinking, rational person. It's all in your mind. And that's the most important thing about you. Later, Darwin kind of synthesizes a whole bunch of things, but he moves the purpose and the intent behind nature. um, That He he removes the purpose behind nature. It's just kind of like a a random um, explosion of, of, of molecules randomly. And it's this idea that he takes... He rips the telos from nature itself. And the, the effects of Darwin's theory, a guy named Charles Taylor wrote this. He says, the cosmos is no longer seen as the embodiment of meaningful order which can define the good for us. Meaning, no longer is nature and our own human bodies able to point us to anything designed or intended We cannot look at created created order to find meaning. Therefore, the human body does not reveal God's intended function for us. This is where we get left with 
personhood theory. That the person, the chosen self, can be separated from the biology, the body. I am not my body. And so these two errors, the religious kind of heresy and the secular fallacy, combine to form two common views of the body. And these have literally formed us. And so when I talk about formation and I say that we are unintentionally formed and we have intentional agency to form, we are being formed by these ideas. Two common views of the body. Rejection of the body. It's something to escape. Obsession with the body. It's something to conquer. Two different views. And here's the hard part. Both of them kind of detach our, our mind and our body. <laughs> we, we kind of come separate. I'm going to escape my body and one day float in heaven. <laughs> um, but what about resurrection, right? We talked about this. Um, it is deeply theological, you guys, for us to believe that our bodies mean something. It is deeply whole to think about that. Now, you might be thinking, well, I just see a lot of people devaluing the body, um, and, and it's just like this weird thing going on, right? Or I want to escape my body, but I also want to conquer my body, and there's this dualistic thing happening in ourselves, right? And uh, this is really where it gets hard. We celebrate so much when people conquer their bodies and make their bodies do amazing things, right? Like Ironmans and the Olympics and some of these things that were just like, wow, that is amazing that you, you had the discipline to conquer and make your body do something so incredibly hard. And in some ways, it's just a beautiful thing. I mean, that's also something to be thankful for and worship God about. But some of this creates kind of a double bind, kind of a trap in us, right? If the body is outside of the ideal for many of us, then we don't feel like we're celebrated, like we're not young enough, we're not slim enough or attractive enough or strong enough or white enough or whatever it is. Some of us feel like we just want to be liberated from the restraints of our body. This leads to body hatred. Do you know that there's a poll out that says 90% of human beings in our country, especially in the West, we loathe our bodies. And this is men and women. Researchers actually characterize Western, kind of the Western mindset and this relationship we have with our body as something they call normative discontent, which is like this. How do you feel about your body? I'm normatively discontent with it. It's just kind of normally I'm just discontent. So how we see ourselves, what I'm trying to get at today, is a lot of lead up. How we see ourselves is central to what it means to be human. We have lost kind of this, or we are losing this idea of embodiment. 
we are losing, we are, we are losing what it looks like to function how God created us and to, to feel like a whole person. And we cannot thrive as humans. Here's my argument. We cannot thrive as humans without completely integrating what we know up here, what we trust up here with what is down here. When, God ta- when it talks about restoring a re- right relationship with God, this is called righteousness. Righteousness isn't just a right relationship with God. We talk about God bringing us back into a right relationship with him, and that's like the focus of our worship together. And then we talk about God bringing us back into a right relationship with others. We talk about forgiveness and all that fun stuff. But we never really talk about God's re- God bringing us back into a right relationship with ourselves. And some of you are like, Ryan, why are we talking about this? I don't like it. To lose embodiment, and this is some of the work that I've been in lately, and Angela and I, is, is to miss out on Tov. To be disconnected is to miss out on God's functioning purpose goodness for us. We cannot thrive without complete integration. And connecting to ourselves and others and God is at the core of how we view our bodies. I mean, that's right at the center of how we view ourselves. So what do we do? Well, here's a couple of pastoral things for us. And trust me, this could be like a whole series. And some of you are like, thank goodness it's not. But this really could be a whole series. And the first thing I want you to notice is this. We need to awaken to the reality that distorting the tove is the enemy's playbook. Meaning, a lot of times in in these circumstances, uh, the pastor or the preacher or whatever will start with sin. We'll start with how you're messed up, broken, full of sin, whatever. But that wasn't the original beginning of the story. The original beginning of the story, Genesis 1, 27 says this, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. God saw everything he had made, male and female, and said, this is Tov. This is how it should function. This is fully flourishing what I intended. And it's not just good like the stars and the beach and the animals and all that. This is very good. We are the only creation in God's created order that is created in his image and likeness. The enemy does not create. Jesus says the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And the enemy is only able to distort what is created. Why? The first temptation in the garden is about the body. It's this idea of nourishment and trusting God for nourishment or not. And then the first effects of that grabbing onto or not trusting what God had intended was this desire to hide. And there was shame. And there was shame in the body. It's all physical. So why does the enemy keep going after the body? Why does the enemy keep hitting us, okay, in our, in, 
in our thinking about our bodies because it says that we are made in his image, in the image of God he created them. We are image bearers. Male and female reflect the glory of God, both male and female. Some of you in the church who are female don't feel like you felt that in the church growing up. You are reflecting just as much the image of God as male. And I think maybe more, I don't know. <laughs> we carry in us this spark of God, this life of God. Uh, we show the glory of God. We are created our bodies to house God and uh, house the divine, the potential of, of, we are the potential of where heaven meets earth in the sense of the image of God. Now, all this, there's so much going on. There's a passage here in Colossians that talks about this. Um, I could unpack this for a long time, um, but I'm going to skip to verse 27. Um, and Paul says this, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This whole passage and you can go back and read it. Verse 24 through 27 is about what Christ did in his body for us. So that Christ would be in us the hope of glory as a presentation to the Gentiles. This is a huge deal. The mystery that God created our bodies to house God is a fantastic thing to think about. A lot of us just have kind of bifurcated our mind and our bodies, and we've just said, I, okay, I mentally believe in Jesus, and I'm going to float to heaven someday when I die. And that is not the full picture. That we are walking temples. There's temple language all through Scripture. We're seeing it. We see it in the Old Testament about the temple, and then in the in the New Testament, uh, the writings of Paul, First Corinthians six nineteen. Do do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? Why is there an all-out assault on the body? It's because you were made in the image of God, and you were meant to house the divine. And the teachings of Scripture, hear me on this one if you don't hear anything else. The teachings of Scripture do not demonize the body. The, script, the Scriptures actually divinize the body. I'm not saying that you're a God, you're going to be a God. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the God of Scripture promises and desires to have such a relationship with you that he houses his, himself in us as a pointer to the world. And if you were, like, there's so much we could do here. We could talk about all the words in the New Testament that talk about the flesh and how it's bad, and all. It, that's not my arm. It's not, it's something else. It's our will. It's the way we've desired to live out things contrary to God. But if you read all the codes in Scripture about the temple, that same God lives in us. If you've surrendered your life to him, that same God lives in us. God took up a body in Jesus. 
Jesus kept his body. Like I said before, he did not escape his body. He, he, he had a renewed body, like a resurrected body. And scripture tells us that that's the first fruits of what you and I will experience, meaning it's just a taste. It's like the first crop that comes up is a pointer that there's more that's going to come. And I shared this at Van's funeral on Friday. That first sign of fruit on a tree or that first ear of corn or whatever it is, is a reminder that there's more to come. And that's what Paul's saying. This is Jesus's resurrection is the first fruit of you and me having resurrected bodies. And the second thing I want to say here is before we get towards the end here is our body is a temple, but the temple is in ruins. It's not gone. For a host of reasons, it is in ruins. Okay, we've got the fall, the way we treat our bodies, the way we think about our bodies, the way we believe about our bodies, the way we talk about our bodies. And then how about how we treat other bodies? And how about how other bodies have treated our bodies? It's not Tov. It's not how God created, intended us. It's not the way that God intended for his creation to function. But here's the thing. We just fast forward to Jesus. Jesus healed bodies. And then he healed more than just bodies. He healed the whole person. Look at the story of the paralytic man lowered through the roof. Beautiful story of healing, not just physically, but soulfully. Think about the woman caught in adultery. And God rescues her, actually saves her body from stoning. John 9 is another passage that I think is fantastic. Take a look at this, John 9, verse 1 through 2. It says this, As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned that this man, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? These are the religious leaders. And they have this belief that because this man is blind, somebody did something wrong. Why is he like this? What was the cause? What's the real story? But here's the thing. Many of you are walking around in your life going, why am I like this? What happened? Why am I not taller or or smaller in this area? Or why does my body not work right? Why does my body not work like that or feel like that or look like that? My friend Tim, he loves baseball, and he's confined to a wheelchair. So much, though, um, that he, uh, he literally only leaves his house a handful, his house, physically leaves his house a handful of times a year. And one of those is for when him and I go to a baseball game. You can imagine what it's like to not leave your house. And then all of a sudden, you're driving in a car and the wind's blowing in, right? 
And he just feels, he, he's like, man, he's like, I feel like a kid. I love this. He's got his baseball mitt. He's got his hat on. <laughs> he can't catch, <laughs> but he brings his mitt. I love it. And the first thing we do when we get down to the game is he, he loves ribs. And he eats ribs like he's eight years old. And they're just all over him. And he's, it, there's not enough napkins for Tim. And he stays for the whole game. He will not leave. Doesn't matter. Rain, sun, doesn't matter. He's there for the whole game. Why? Because this is the only time he's out of the house. He couldn't go to the game this year because his shoulder is broken. And it's broken because when he was a child, he was born, when he was a child, he was born with hemophilia. And it's, uh, if you're not familiar, you, your blood does not clot like normal human beings. And so when you get injured, you bleed. And it also has a huge effect on joints. And over the years, he's become more crippled and more unable to move. He got a transfusion when he was a college student, late, actually right after college. And it was in the 80s. And because of the result of that blood transfusion, he got AIDS. And his family, um, I mean, sorry, his friends kind of all backed away. And if you were alive in the 80s, you know what that was like. And he lost friends. He was ostracized. He now had not only hemophilia, but he had AIDS. He had HIV. And his body continued to deteriorate. In 2012, he had to have his leg amputated. And so when he called me in early September and said, I can't go to the game because I can't get from my wheelchair to the car. I said, Tim, well, I can help try to muscle you, <laughs> muscle you into the car. He's like, no, I, I can't do it. And this last week, as his shoulder continues to deteriorate, I spent time with him. And he is just... You and I can't imagine what he goes through. And he's sitting there, and he has to get to the bathroom, and he can't get to the bathroom in time. And he's embarrassed. And him and I talk about Jesus a lot. And his, he's got a lot of baggage from the church when he's a kid. <laughs> we all kind of do. But man, he loves to talk about resurrection. That's so exciting for him. And he doesn't understand it, and he doesn't even know if he can trust it. Jesus goes on in John 9, he says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So this isn't a karma thing. This isn't a, you're getting what you deserve kind of an equation. We live in a disintegrated world right now, born in all sorts of different ways. We think that we are less than ideal. 
N.T. Wright puts it like this. No, something much stranger, at once more mysterious and more hopeful is going on. The chaos and misery of this present world is, it seems, the raw material out of which the loving, wise, and just God is making his new creation. Jesus does something amazing in this passage with this blind man. He actually does something very Genesis, very, very creation-y. He takes the dust of the ground. He takes dust. And then he does something kind of Jesus-y and he spits in it. And he puts it on the man's eyes. He takes the old creation and makes new creation. He, he, he shows what it looks like to be integrated and whole. Now, this guy, this blind man, goes on to die one day. Lazarus, raised from the dead, still goes on to die one day. The big thing is death. What he is doing, no, right now, I believe Jesus, what he is doing even right now is restoration. The enemy's goal is to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus brings back stolen goods. He resurrects dead places, not just in our minds and in our souls, but in our bodies, in how we think about our bodies. And following Jesus is not just lived in our heads. It's not just lived in our heads. We are whole people. And so today, as we head towards communion, which is a very earthy, physical thing we do together, I want you to be curious. As hard as this is, I want you to be curious about your relationship, how you think about, how you think about your body, your thoughts about your body. Some of you might have trauma that you have stuffed down in your life. I'm gonna just tell you this right now, it's still there. And until you get into that, until you walk into that and, and be curious about it and maybe get some help with that, it will block your experience of God's love for you. His tove for you. Theologian Stanley Hauerwas says that, it's true, that to truly understand a story, we cannot just hear it, we have to act it out. And that's what communion is. It's not just telling a story, retelling a story. It's actually acting the story out together. That Jesus, on the night he was betrayed and put in a position to feel pain and whipping and all the things that came with his crucifixion, on the night he was put in that position, he actually took bread, broke it, passed it around and said, this is my body. This is, this is what I'm about to do. I'm about to break my body for you. And then he passed a cup of wine and he says, this symbolizes blood, which will be spilled for you. And so what we do together all these years later is reenact that moment physically. We, there's a bunch of different ways to do it. Ideally, we would be around a table. We would be passing the bread to each other physically. 
But today we, we stand physically and come to the table. We physically touch the bread and we ingest it and we grab the juice and we ingest it. as a way of embodying what God has done for us. Let me pray. Father, this morning, this is a lot of things for us to think about, to wrestle with. My guess is in a place like this, there is much that is, um, this brings up a lot. And it's no accident that you called this gathering a body. It's no, it's no accident. And some of us in this room are hurting, wounded, fearful of being curious. Some of us in this room come in here with trauma, with real trauma in our bodies. And the body of Christ over years and years has failed to acknowledge that. We've said things like, pray about it, trust more, believe better. But we haven't really gotten to the root. What you've done for us with your body begins the healing. We don't come to the table here this morning and are magically healed. We come to the table expecting that one day we will be fully healed. That you have broken death that your body, your resurrection is the first fruit of what we will all experience. That the beauty that we experience in this world from holding a newborn baby and sight and smells and feels will one day become our whole reality. And the pain and the crying and the dysfunction and the chaos and the stolen, the stole, what has been stolen from us will be given back. You will restore us. So God, be with us as we come to the table in curiosity for what this means. And we come to the table as a body. And you may want to come up today with somebody. You may want to ask someone to come with you physically. This is for you, church. Come when you're ready.